0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Franci, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional teal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate from the life they're now able to live to the person they've become along the way as they pursued their dreams and having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Before I introduce my next guest, it's important to me that I begin the show by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback that you provide us on the show, as well as to remind and certainly encourage you to continue to send in any of your comments, your suggestions, or questions directly to me at ceo at raincanada.com. That is ceo at reincanada.com. And if you're inclined, I'd really appreciate it if you were to share the show with your friends and your family, Uh, people you know, people you don't know, to rate the show, comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in, and as well, why not follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thank you again for the feedback that you provide the team and I. It is sincerely appreciated, and hopefully we're putting it to good use. So let's get this show started. My guest today is an individual that I met while on vacation at a resort in St. Lucian. His name is Leon Taylor. He's a former Olympian and silver medal winner. And I'll give you a little bit of his background. Now, he was competing for Great Britain in the discipline of both single and synchronized diving. Leon's passion for life and really everything he does is what drove him to achieve and sustain success at the highest level. Considered really a feat in itself for such a physically demanding and punishing sport, his career lasted more than 20 years And his successes brought diving to the attention of the British public. It was a really big deal. He was training in the pre-lottery funding era in a minority sport that brought lots of challenges. But in Athens Olympics of 2004, Leon and his diving partner, Peter Waterfield, managed to secure Britain's first medal in the sport for 44 years. What an honor. And that led to additional investments in the sport and the development of a whole new crop of British diving talent. He retired from diving in May 2008. And Leon is now an integral part of the BBC Sports Olympic coverage and has also been mentored to, among others, diving sensation Tom Daly. And you'll hear from Leon, I'm sure, and you'll really sense just how lit up he is by being a mentor to other divers. This role actually led him to write his first book, Mentor, the most important role you were never trained for, aimed at organizations wishing to engage and nurture talent through mentoring. He is held in high regard and has become a sought after professional speaker, conference host, workshop facilitator, and an executive coach. His reputation and his profile in all of these areas has been building steadily over the last decade as he continues his role as a brand ambassador for BMW, BT, Lloyds Bank, Lululemon Athletica, and SSE. Leon is also a judge on the Saturday night ITV show, Splash, hosted by Vernon Kay and Gabby Logan. The contest sees Olympic hero Tom Daly... Teaching his sport to celebrities before they demonstrate their skills in a series of live shows. Today, I get to dig in a little deeper on Leon's journey to becoming an athlete and really post athleticism, as in what things look like on the other side of an Olympic medal. And without further delay, I'm looking forward to getting this show started. Leon Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being on the
1: show. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Looking forward to this conversation, Patrick.
0: Yeah, me too. So, you know, just to give the listener a little bit of a background, I've actually met you on a vacation in St. Lucia. I'd actually met you in 2016 briefly, but you, we didn't connect for all the reasons we didn't connect at that time at the same resort in St. Lucia. The body holiday was fun. It was great. This year, I started doing your beach fit classes, 7 a.m. You worked our asses off out on the beach. It was fun. And uh, I really got into it. And I want to just say one thing is that it was a, a reset for me. I'd been off training for a little bit and it was a re- nice reset for me. So I'm back into my training. I got my, you know, I'm bringing my weight back down to where I would like to be, you know, my, my fighting weight and I've been working out. So thanks for that.
1: Oh, pleasure! Well, listen, I'm uh, no, the the listeners can't uh, see you as I can. Of course, we're uh, we're on video uh, Skype, so I can see how well you are looking. So good for you, and I'm <laughs> delighted that you give me uh, a little bit of credit for the hard work that you decided to do. So I'll I'll accept that. But well done to you for uh, for taking it and uh, keeping the momentum going. Well, thanks, Leon.
0: So what was really great about that time? Uh, you know, I got to number one. I got to hear you. I had the opportunity to hear you speak. I. Was really observant of how you show up, how you occur when you're working with a group of adults and vacationing adults and how you speak to them. Now, your background is as an Olympian for Great Britain and in the world of synchronized diving. And I want to talk about that. I want to really talk about what you're doing today, like in your life, you know, post Olympics. And Just to that point, before we get into your Olympic journey and a little bit of your background, which I think is really, is one of the highest interests to me, you know, in the context of seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results, how is it that you do that? How is it that we can take some of what you've done in your life and apply it in our life today? So that's a long-winded way of getting to this question. When people ask you today, what do you do? What's your answer to that question
1: <laughs> Wow, what a question and it's one that I have to navigate because uh well if if you were asking me um, my uh, my short answer is well, I hide from a real job and um, I think that's uh, uh that's something that I hold very dear to uh, to my heart so at the moment um I have a uh, many interests and so life post olympian if you will uh, didn't set me up in a particular direction but set me up with many curiosities and many interests. So uh, so now I do things as far-ranging as teaching yoga. Uh, my other half, Ali, she has a chain of yoga centers. I'm a professional speaker, conference host. I work uh, as an executive coach, so a performance and wellness coach. I also, I guess my biggest passion, if I was going to have to uh, pick one of the things that lights me up the most, and that would be my mentoring. And actually today, end of day here in, uh, in the UK, I've had a, an absolute pleasure of meeting uh, a young athlete today actually in my sport of diving which is uh, unusual for me I I tend to mentor athletes in different sports but um, yeah she was uh, introduced to me she's going uh, through as young athletes do many challenges and uh, you know through mutual connection. so would you would you like to meet this uh, young lady and uh, and as soon as I sat down with her Uh, Before she'd even said anything, I knew that I was going to be willing to work with her. And uh, we spent an hour together. Both her mum and dad were nearby. It was uh, a coffee shop. In the uh, uh, in just outside of uh, central London and um, you know my role is there to uh, to inspire the next generation but to be honest with you Patrick it's me that leaves inspired and with a spring in my step and uh, and I feel very privileged to be in the position now uh, having been there and got a t-shirt so in my case uh, an Olympic Games t-shirt and and all that comes with that all of the learnings discoveries all of the the failures that are screw ups the the things that didn't make a difference and and all of the areas that contribute to a young athlete's life and adventure if you will so dealing with the media nutrition where do you go to school how do you deal with mum and dad how do you deal with your coach and all those exciting and and uh almost overwhelming things um someone like uh, myself who's been there and had a similar experience can often act as a bit of a guide and um yeah, so I'm many different things, a coach, a mentor, a speaker, a yoga teacher, and uh, ultimately hiding from a real job.
0: That's cool, though. That, I mean, you are I can even hear it in your language, Leanne, as you're speaking, what it means to you to be able to support some young person uh, taking it to the next level. And having had some conversation with you, and I have a relatedness to it because of my own background in working with young mm. athletes years for many years in just the business I have. So I really uh, share a lot of that. Same inspiration when you're working with these kids, you know, when you're talking about this particular, I'm going to go back to another young guy that Mm -hmm. you worked with that you mentored and and he went on to do some pretty incredible things. But this young lady, as an example, when you're sitting Mm -hmm. down with them, aside from the athleticism, I mean, you have to assess the athleticism, but Mm -hmm. are you also really listening to her for her, perhaps her own inspiration or passion, her coachability is that some of the things that you look into when you're considering working with a young athlete like this in a mentor position?
1: Yeah, for, for sure. So what, I mean, there isn't necessarily a checklist per se, but there are a few things that I'm, uh, uh that are on my, uh, my spidey, spidey senses are, are, are tingling, right? So there's, there's certain things that draw my attention. There's the, um, there's the curiosity that uh that, that, that someone has to listen to learn uh, and the clarity uh that that actually that this is a valuable opportunity and um you know that i've got their attention and uh, that their uh you know expectations and intentions as well are also in the game so i spend a lot of time asking questions, which is, you know, as I've learned over the years, you know, the key to supporting and challenging anyone who's looking to improve. You know, I, my role as a mentor isn't to uh, do someone's homework for them, to tell them the answers, uh, to make it, uh, you know, to, to to make it my own. My, my role is to uh, to pull out, to tease out, to, uh, to stimulate in a way where they figure it out for themselves because my role is not to be there. I need to create independence. So I'm looking to set that up from the beginning. There's been maybe some interactions in the past where uh, someone has approached me very confidently and said, hey, Leon, you know, I'd hear you do this mentoring thing. I'd love you to be my mentor. And I said, wow, thank you so much. Name of young athlete. That's very flattering. And, uh, you know, that uh, means a lot. And um, what is it uh, exactly that you think I can uh, you know, do for you as a, as a mentor, the role as a mentor? I don't know. I think it'd be pretty cool. <laughs> ah, okay. Then we're probably not on the same page, you know? So there's, uh, there's an element of, uh, of, you know, what's, you know, what's in it for them? Like, where are they looking at this? What, what are the, what are the things they're interested in? And, uh, and certainly for my meeting today, I call it a meeting, the interaction, the conversation, just that initial thing, lots of the uh, important attributes that are there, you know, just the, the, twinkle in the eye the the answers to the questions that i asked i said so you know what's it all about for you like what what is it with that no moment of hesitation the big o word olympic games you know that's my dream you know that's it but said with with clarity and um with determination and tenacity just in the tonality of how uh the young person was to say those words because those are easy words to say we can all say you know i want to do this i want to do that but but to say it with the the intention of a committed decision, uh, is, is something that, uh, you can't always be, you never know what's going to happen, of course, but, but if you are going to go on a particular path, then, uh, then certainly it's not going to be easy. That's for sure.
0: You know, in this conversation, I want to, I want to kind of break it into two or three parts. One of which is I want to know a little bit of your background and I've done, of course, a little research on you and, and based on conversations we had picked up on some things. And then there's the, you know, so my wife, Stephanie, who you have also met, of course, is she's actually just left today for, uh, for Seoul. So she's got athletes in, in Olympics, winter Olympics. What we use, we use a term that she's actually writing a book called the other side of the metal in working with athletes because there's i love that title by the way sorry
1: to interrupt pat anyway
0: (laughs) isn't it it a great title though and so her her book is going to be titled the other side of the medal she's working on it and uh, looking forward to that coming out because as you know there is the growing up the journey to whatever competition in this case an olympic medal or a world grand prix medal or whatever that might be and then there's all of a sudden you do hit that point in your life where you're hit the age or Physicality, where guess what? Time to move on. And then there's life after the medal. And so I want to talk a little bit about growing up and getting to the medal. And then now you're doing some work corporately as well, as well as your mentorship. And I want to hear a little bit more about that and how those two came together and how they come together to help you be a really effective coach and corporate guide, supporting business people. So take me back. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you grow up?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in uh, in the Cotswolds, uh, a Cotswold area of uh, of, the, of the UK. So uh, a small town called Cheltenham Spa, right in the centre of uh, of Gloucestershire. And uh, yeah, quite humble beginnings. So my local pool uh, didn't even have a very uh, impressive and still doesn't, a very impressive diving facility. And so uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, if you were going to put someone on a map in the UK and say, OK, this is uh, a good place to uh, to start one's diving career. I was uh, miles away, but very, you know, as many sports people will attest to, uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, things going on and you do need a little bit of opportunity, a little bit of luck along the way. And I suppose for me, from a diving point of view, the, um, the facility, as humble as it was, it had uh, a very small diving club and uh, a very committed volunteer diving coach and a little bit of a, a history um, uh, as a club. And, uh, and that was all I needed as a, as, as a starting point. But before that, the reason I ended up in a diving pool is because my poor parents didn't know what to do with me. And Patrick, you know, this story, my, and my mum and dad probably still refer to me now as a pain in the backside because of my, uh, endless amounts of energy, let's say. So as a, as a child, as a baby, I was um, I was in need of constant attention. I was hyperactive. I drove my parents up the wall. They couldn't sleep. They had no sleep apparently for weeks and months on end. And. Uh, you know, they didn't know what to do with me. And the strategy that they uh, in the end settled with uh, was to try and tire me out. And they tire me out through constant activity. And that, of course, went into sporting activities very, very quickly. So I was swimming while I was still in nappies, as we call them over here, or diapers, I believe they're referred to elsewhere. And I was in uh, mother and baby gymnastics classes before I was one year old. And, And my life of activity started way before I can remember. And, um, to be honest, diving was just one of the many sports that I said yes to as a young, vibrant, hyperactive pain in the backside child that uh, my parents were trying to tire out. Well, you know, it's
0: interesting too. You've got a body type for an athlete, you know, certainly you've, you've got that Ferrari body type in terms of your, you know, I don't know what you weigh, but you're not a big, you're not big. You're not a diesel like me. And so you are pretty well built for a lot of those types of sports that kind of quick twitch or fast twitch muscle groups Mm -hmm. that you fire when you're swimming. And so how did that work for you? When did you start to, I guess, let me, let me go back. So as you got a little older and where were you, did you have a real love of swimming and diving? Is that what it was for you or what, how did
1: that yeah, it's a good question. So my first love was swimming. That was my first competitive sport. I remember competing in swimming at the age of six and winning a, a certificate or maybe it was even a rosette or something. So not even a, a medal, if you will. And uh, the the thrill of focus of competition was, uh, was something that captivated me from you know, from a very, very early age. And the gymnastics also was a sport that I competed in, you know, at a very, very young age. And um, around that time, so I'm six years old, competing in gymnastics and in swimming. And I watched the Olympic Games on the TV. Uh, the Olympic Games were in 1984 in Los Angeles. And uh, that was a, a key memory for me one which is so vivid now that I remember watching the Olympic games on the TV and being completely mesmerized as a 6 year old by all of the different sports and countries and flags and colors of tracksuits and everything and I remember having a, a, a conversation with with my dad specifically around a um, a very pivotal moment in Olympic history where D- Daley Thompson who uh, who won the decathlon so track and field 10 events as as many of you listening will know and Daley Thompson was a very provocative character. He's from Great Britain, Team GB. And he's he's won the gold, uh, retained his Olympic uh, title. And I don't really know any of this because I'm six. But I, I remember watching this guy standing on the podium, wearing this gold medal around his neck and uh, watching the flag being raised, the union flag being raised, God Save the Queen being played. And uh, he's whistling. And so I innocently asked my dad, "Okay, dad, 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 why is that man whistling? And my dad kind of screws up his face and he says, well, I think he's trying to stop himself crying. And my response was, why? Is he in trouble? <laughs> <laughs> so I was confused. He said, well, the reason, uh, no, no, no. The reason, uh, you know, Leon, sometimes when people are so happy, they can start to cry. So in an excessive form. And I was, Obviously, six years old and confused, and then and then my dad just says, "What well, I guess was a th- you know just um, a by the by comment." He said, "Well, the reason why Daley Thompson is is so happy, Leon, is because when you're a sports person, uh, there's nothing greater than the Olympic Games." And uh, my response was, "This, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go." And it seems funny sharing that story with you now, as I have uh, um, uh, many many times before, but but actually. I didn't just want to go. That was, as I referred to before, a committed decision. Uh, Because my behaviour's totally changed, I would, my my poor dad, I'd ask him every couple of weeks, Dad, when are the Olympic Games back on again? And he'd have to explain to a uh, six-year-old that they're every four years, which actually takes some doing. And I would uh, also, every Christmas, I remember getting the Guinness Book of World Records. And I would, uh, at that time, write my personal best for swimming Every time I beat my personal best, I'd write it down next to the world record holder to see how many minutes I needed to take off or seconds of minutes to take off to make the Olympic Games. And it became my thing. And that was the from the age of six. You know, it was all about that dream of going to uh to the Olympic Games, and the sports kind of came and went. It was a bit of a scatter approach and obviously, if you think about diving, uh, I started diving just before I was nine, but because i 'd been training in gymnastics frequently since I was goodness twelve months old, I had lots of transferable skills, so I excelled very quickly in the diving pool, and it kind of combined. You know, my love of swimming and, as you mentioned, my fast twitch ability and and the uniqueness. I always rebelled against those who, who followed the crowd. So here in the UK, as you'll know, it's all about football, about soccer. And, uh, you know, my dad's a, a big soccer fan, but uh, I categorically refused to enjoy it and play it. And I went for something different. And, uh, yeah, rightly or wrongly, I think, uh, you know, went uh, against the grain.
0: So you came through this, you know, lots of support from your parents. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Did, do you have siblings?
1: I do, yes. A younger sister.
0: And And any sports kind of background for her as well?
1: Yeah, do you know what the Nadine was uh, was very much into all of the same sports that that I did because it kind of made sense that if I'm in uh, you know in the swimming pool that um, it would be great for you know for my mum or my dad whoever was with us you know for uh, for her so she was given uh, and enjoyed the same opportunities as I did in, in sport but um, if you speak to her which uh, which you know she affectionately tell the story that I'm the sporty one and she's the clever one and over <laughs> uh, over the years when she she, uh, she decides she, she excelled in incredibly well in academia, and she has, uh, you know, PhD. So she's a doctor in uh, you know in uh, in the world of uh, marine biology, actually. So she studies in uh, uh, t- uh, freshwater toxicology, and she has many papers after her name. And if you go to uh, my mum and dad's house, there's uh, you know picture of me on the wall with an Olympic medal, and my sister with many of her, uh, her honors as well. So we uh, yeah we were a very very active um, brother and sister as a and then, of course, what my parents did very well, they gave my sister and I responsibility for what we wanted to do. And my sister over the years was, was clear of saying, actually, mum, uh, dad, I don't enjoy netball or swimming anymore. You know, and they would say, well, that's fine. Then, you know, then that's your decision and we was facilitate what you want to do. And whereas I was, um, you know, a red rag to a ball, I couldn't get enough of it. So they uh, made sure that it was me driving it. Not once did they ever say, Oh, you know, come on, you know, you've, you've got to do it if anything it was uh, yeah it was uh, them keeping uh, keeping me disciplined with the other commitments for example school when i was younger concentrating was very difficult for me as was sitting still so you could imagine At school, uh, being told as a youngster, sit still and concentrate, two of which uh, the things (laughs) that weren't available to me were very challenging. So my parents uh, used my love of sport to encourage me to pay as much attention as I could at school. And fortunately, with that discipline, uh, I managed to make it through academia and uh, ultimately uh, head off to university and uh, not quite as uh, bright as my sister, of course. But I did get an honorary doctorate, which uh, did piss her off a lot, actually. (laughs) So she calls that she calls that a fake doctorate, which is uh, quite right, because, uh, yeah, I just fell off a diving board for a while.
0: (laughs) So tell me a little bit about, you know, when did you for for listeners that have children in sports? You know, when did Mm. you recognize or when do you think you started to recognize or your parents started to recognize that beyond your own desire and love of what you were doing? When did you start to maybe recognize that you were competing or performing at a level that was potentially world-class you know it, was that just proven out through the various local competitions when you were young or it, it so there's, there's a there's that whole part of being an athlete where lots of people want to be something but it's they, they just don't they lack the physical skill no matter how hard they work so was there a time where you where there was a light bulb that went on for you your coaches your family that said you know something leon's Got it figured out. Like beyond his desire, he's physically really, really great. Was there a point like that?
1: Yeah, there certainly was. I mean, it's it's interesting because now sport is uh, is so well um, monitored, if you will. So you know, there is many experts around. Whereas uh, in the eighties, which is when uh, my my career first started, it was you know lick your finger, stick it in the air, and you know off you, off you go. And and so there wasn't quite as much um, you know education around uh, talent identification and such like as there is quite rightly now. But I do remember. A few a few points uh, you know, as you've already mentioned there are many levels of competition and you start to compare yourself. So I was excelling in, in all three sports that I loved at an early age, swimming, diving and gymnastics. And by the time I was 11, I was competing at national championships for my age group in all three of those sports. And uh, I, and I had an idea on kind of where I was at because in swimming, I was uh, 16th for the hundred meters backstroke for the under 12 age group in, in, in GB uh, for gymnastics. I was fourth in the country for my age and diving, I was number one. And, uh, that's when I made my first career decision. And that's when the diving coaches and the gymnastics coaches were both not demanding, but, but categorically saying, look, you know, we think Leon got has got what it takes. Um, look where he is in the country for his age. Um, and he needs to train more. And, uh, I had to make a decision on which sport I wanted to do, or the other de- the other choice was to do both and not, compete at the level that i was at so i had that conversation with my dad and it was important for me now retrospectively how my dad uh embraced uh took uh, introduced that conversation because he could have quite easily influenced me because uh he said I've spoken to Dave, your your diving coach and Pete, your gymnastics coach, and and uh both of them are delighted with, you know, the results you've got this year and, and uh both of them you know are asking that you now need to train every night, basically. And uh and I said, Well, I won't be able to do that then, Dad, because the the times clash. And he said, I know, I know. He said, So you know, if you wanted to go all the way, which is what you've stated to the Olympic Games, then you would need to pick one or do both and maybe not, you know, continue on progressing. I said, well, I definitely want to go to the Olympic Games. And he said, OK, so so which sport do you want to do? And I said, well, which one do you think I should do then, Dad? And uh, and what he didn't do was uh, like, you know, consider his schedule and think, well, actually, I like to go to the pub on Thursday night. Maybe <laughs> you should do, you know, he said, well, which one do you enjoy the most? And uh, I said, well, diving. And he said, "Okay. well, I'll tell you gymnastics coach for you. And that was it. Again, just uh, uh, being driven by, you know, these emotive drivers, the big ones, the big important ones, you know. Yeah, you know, which is the one that you enjoy the most? And and for me that assessment was based and it's a combination of how well I was doing, how much I enjoy you know, enjoyed the friendship side, the training, the competing. And uh yeah, it was it was down to me. And so that was my decision. There was never any all oh, if only I'd
0: How old were you at that point? Eleven. Eleven years old you're making that yeah. kind of decision. And, of course, it's always in reflection that you say, well, gosh, it wasn't that a fork in the road for you when you made that Mm -hmm. decision. It was like took you off on a journey and a path to the Olympics. Now, Mm -hmm. you've been to three. You'd actually competed at three different Olympics. One was the first time you were doing the opening ceremonies and going through all of that experience.
1: Yeah, so 1996, uh, the Atlanta Games and uh and back then it was a it was a surprise selection in many ways. There's an interview of me on VHS tape when I'm uh 10 years old with a squeaky voice with braces on my teeth and the uh interviewer is, uh, is asking me that classic question, like, what's your ambition? And I say, oh, I'd like to go to the Olympic Games maybe in the year 2000. And I, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, excuse my a terrible uh, impression of me well, as a 10 year old. Yes, yeah, the best I can do. Anyway, I, I've yeah the year two thousand because so I figured I'd be twenty two and you know I need the experience and everything. But but actually, uh, as it happened, the acceleration I made in my uh, in my career in in my teens, uh, even against all of the challenges of not training at a uh, at a venue that had a ten meter diving board. Would you believe the highest diving board that I had at my facility was a five meter? I needed to travel every single weekend for a few hours in the car with my coach to train at a different venue to you know so it was it was an uphill challenge and uh, i was also doing my a levels so here in the uk those are the uh, exams you do at the age of 17 18 that get you into uh, to university and they're very very tough and challenging and i managed to do uh, a levels and olympic games in the same year and uh, I was one of the youngest on the team in 1996. And this is before Team GB was the juggernaut that it is now. So it's Summer Olympic Games, certainly. Yeah. Um, this is when Team GB at those Olympic Games was 36 on the medal table. And we had one Olympic gold medal. Now, if you compare that to London, where we were third on the uh, on the medal table and, and, and sorry, fourth and then Rio with, you know, 69 medals it was a very very different landscape and uh you know as you know a a tiny percentage of the population get to be part of the team and I made it at the age of 18 this small small town boy if you like from uh you know from Cheltenham in Gloucestershire and it was Incredible! Uh, I remember receiving a letter, an official letter through the post, saying that I'd been selected. Emails just you know around, but not you know not as it is now, where you get your notification via your Twitter notifications. It was uh, yeah, it was an incredible moment, and um, it, it's not overstating it, saying a dream come true because you know at the age of six, you know I wanted to go to the world's greatest event, and at the age of eighteen, I was on my way for the first time.
0: Did you have an expectation of winning?
1: no certainly uh you know uh, i mean you have uh A dream of going and I remember when I was six watching uh, you know daily as I mentioned receiving his gold and that was the dream right winning Olympic gold when I'm six but when I'm 18 and you know I know where I am in the world and back then it's uh, you know there's no synchronized diving it's the individual event and I am not scraping in but I'm you know just doing the required amount for the very stringent qualification so I know what points I've I've been able to achieve at international competition and if I can make the semi-final finals, which is the top 18, then that would be, you know, above and beyond what would be expected of me. So I had very, very realistic, pragmatic goals with dreams of bigger things to come, if you will. And so attending, going to the Olympic games, I mean, I wasn't ever going to be satisfied with just getting there, but in those Olympic games at the age of 18, it was, um, it was just well, it was overwhelming because I'd never been anywhere near my heroes before. I'd never been to such a setting. Now, young athletes get chance to compete at Youth Olympic Games. They do multi-sport events all over the world. So when they do step on the world's greatest stage, sporting stage, Olympic Games, Paralympic Games, they've been in competition settings many times before of similar magnitude or, or magnitude. So they don't get spun out. Whereas I walked around with my mouth open, my eyes open, you know, just flabbergasted by surrounded by all of my heroes of track and fields. And I'm walking by there. I didn't really know very much about basketball, but the American dream team are in there and you've just got like, and I, yeah, goodness. How could I concentrate when I'm just, just uh, overwhelmed by the, by the magnitude and the, uh, and the occasion.
0: Yeah. And, and certainly given your background of just, uh, I don't want to call it hyperactivity, but a brain that's firing differently than most, <laughs> anyways, right? It's like, wow, that's cool. Yep. So, but I want to go back. You know, and, and interesting with Olympic competitors is they're waiting four years be- before the true test, so that takes a lot of work. And when you shared the fact that you didn't have a ten-meter board in your neck of the woods or in your hometown, and you're traveling, th- was there times for you where it just felt like a grind. Oh, my gosh, this is hard, you know, having to go do this every week, travel, hang out with my coach and take the time. Did did it show up for you occasionally when you were growing up as, why am I doing this? Or was it just that was just was not even on your radar?
1: Oh, no, no. I, I thought I would be absolutely lying if I said that wasn't on my radar. It happens. It happens frequently, um, you know, and it's uh, FOMO, isn't it? Fear of missing out. So every time I hear of, you know, my uh, my friends doing something or this happening and I'm there training and da-da-da-da, why can't you do this? Oh, because I'm training and oh, can't you join us on that? And this is my birthday and, you know, this is important to me. And, you know, the amount of things that uh, I missed, so weddings, birthdays, funerals, like key moments that are massively important to so many people. And uh, my default answer had to be no. And that is hard. Um, and and that's a real wrench on um, on the thing and then you start to go well is it worth it you know that I often remind myself and the people I work with and I say look the only guarantee is that there's no guarantees and uh and when you're in it you know I've just got dreams and aspirations and I'm tenacious I'm hard working but goodness is it worth it and and I think it's important to to acknowledge that that you know a bad day isn't a bad life and uh you know it's going to suck sometimes and uh you know you do need to check in with yourself and going okay is is this for me is this what i want to do uh but but take those decisions you know in your stride it's not like oh well that's gone wrong today i'm gonna throw everything out and and never come back Uh, it's it's uh yeah, the, the the drive, the uh, towards motivation, that dream was a really really strong pull, and uh, yeah, I, I constantly would uh, would check in with myself, and um, yeah, I would have been foolish just to be so convinced that it would happen. Uh, but underlying the determination and that uh, and that drive and the I guess the the self-centered behaviors which. I had to be developed that filter of, you know, is this right for, for, you know, sports I've put in so much, you know, can I, I'm making decisions with that filter on, you know, will, you know, the same, will it make the boat go faster? Not that I had a boat uh, to go faster, but it was like running that through that filter at all times in order to go after something so far out of um one's reach if you like you can't just rock up and uh, and achieve uh, olympic glory it requires so many of those sacrifices i've mentioned uh that you do question yourself frequently and uh and and rightly so
0: are you having those conversations i'm assuming with your daddy seems to be a pretty instrumental part of your life when you're going through it is those the kind of, are you having those conversations with your dad and your coach and you question yourself out loud with those to get that support or get that guidance.
1: Yeah, do you know it's interesting, really, because uh, I, I sometimes and a lot of introspection, uh, a lot of you, you know, I'm I would be easily uh, labeled, and we don't really, I'm not a really big fan of labels, but I could be easily labeled as an extrovert. But when uh, when the pressure's on, I become introverted. I start to become very, you know introspective, and uh, and I think it's important to have people around you to uh, to be there and to notice that when uh, when those patterns start to run and, and be able to support, challenge, intervene uh, uh, appropriately. And I th- and I think uh, I was lacking uh, great mentors in in my uh, early days, if you like. And 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 I'm d- I'm I'm pleased about that because uh, uh, that's inspired me to to aspire to be w- one of those, one of those people, one of those mentors who, who can, uh, who, who can provide that role outside of, you know, the parents, the coach, the other, the other stakeholders that are involved in, uh, in, in that journey. So yeah, I, I, in my case, it was a lot of, uh, you know, running it over in, 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 internally actually.
0: So you went to, so you're 18 years old, you go to your first Olympics, the overwhelm, the brain firing on all cylinders and you compete. Then four years, you got to wait to say, I'm going to do this again. So you do it again, you get to the Olympics and now you're 22 years old. What was, mm-hmm. what was kind of the difference in that four years or what was the difference once you showed up at Olympics?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so the uh, so the build-up over those next four years, lots of changes happened. So I moved away from my uh, my hometown. I moved to a high-performance setting. So I was training at a venue with a full-time coach with a 10-meter diving board. And also the landscape of this uh, British sporting system changed dramatically halfway through that Olympic cycle. So uh, not only uh, for, for the first time were we able to um, to train full time uh, by way of uh, receiving a monthly grant, which would Enable me to pay rent to somewhere to stay, pay for my own food, but I also got access to um, sports science, which I'd never had access to before. So I was working with physiotherapists, working with the sports psychologist, had access to nutrition. Bio, the biomech teams would uh, uh, biomechanics teams would come in and they would use high speed video cameras and they would get data for you know uh, university research. And it was this incredible time uh, where my hobby became my profession. And I wasn't a professional athlete because I didn't earn money out of it, but I was a full time athlete, which meant that I could train six or seven hours a day um, and I would have support uh, to keep me going, to patch me back up, to put me back together, someone to uh, assist me with what's going on in between my uh, my ears, and give me the opportunity to work on you know what's massively important in, in in all sports, particularly in a sport like diving, which is your ability to manage your state, your emotional control under pressure, your dealing with adversity, the anxiety that uh, that often comes with with any performance. And it was an incredible time and and uh, if i'm honest it was um a lot happens in four years but that one was was incredible it was a coming of age the expectation then suddenly went well no excuses now then leon and team you know you're full time athletes you can't say that you know you do this as a hobby it's like you're accountable now so the pressure and expectation going into into sydney was incredible but we still weren't expected to win to win medals and so uh, in that Olympic Games, uh, I was competing in the individual event. And also for the first time ever, the synchronized diving event discipline was within diving. So I was competing in both of those uh, events. So as an individual in the 10-meter platform and in the synchronized uh, event with Peter Waterfield. And my goals, my outcome goals for those Olympic Games uh, you know, was to win, um, to win a medal in the uh, synchronized diving event and to uh, place in the top 12 to make the final in the individual event. And, uh, the results of those Olympic games was a fourth place in the, uh, synchronized diving event and a 13th in the individual. So I couldn't have been any closer to what I was trying to achieve. And, uh, and that hurt, that was tough to deal with on, on, on many, many levels, especially in a subjective sport where, you know, you can look at the results of the judges and start to, you know, get distracted by, you know the fact that it is a subjective sport and uh and certainly there were mistakes made then which I'm pleased to say were reviewed and rectified over the next four years. But uh, that was a big, big learning because I went into those second Olympic Games, you know, taking it a bit too seriously. I refused to enjoy the occasion in many ways. So in Atlanta, I walked around with my mouth wide open, distracted by all of the incredible athletes. And in Sydney, I didn't look sideways because I was super focused and actually, I squeezed it a bit too hard and uh, took it too seriously. And uh, someone once told me, said, look, some things are too important to take too seriously. And uh, and that for me was like, oh, yeah, OK, I've been there. I know what that's like. So that was one of the key changes I made going f- from, from those games.
0: So what some people listening may not really understand is that When you start training six and seven hours a day, you, you, you know, you can't really, you can maybe work part-time maybe, but the federations, you know, around the world in terms of how they support their athletes is quite different. So getting funds for you to support you in terms of getting the training you need, getting the uh, support you need from nutrition or psychological, or, you know, those mental kinds of aspects of things, that's a really, that's an important part of it. And, I just share that because I want to shine a light on that. That Those are a lot of, uh, I don't want to call it background noise, but those are a lot of things. You're not just showing up and all life is good. You're dealing with challenges aside from what you're trying to do athletically. You've got life going on around you that says, holy cow, how are we going to pay for all this? And how many are you going to get the support I need? And so that adds to any athlete going to the Olympics. Uh, it adds to the load as well. Was that? Did you find it that way as well, Leon?
1: Yes, indeed. So and you're, you know, it's on a, on the knife edge as well, because if you don't perform, if you don't compete, if you don't achieve certain levels, then uh, then you're out. You know, the funding is cut individually or the sport. And uh, and unless you've got something to fall back on, uh, as it were, then you uh, and many athletes are now being um yeah, caught in, in a very, very tough situation uh, where they've committed so much and, uh, and it hasn't, for whatever reason, uh, gone the way that they'd hoped or, or the way that it was going, uh, initially. And, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a huge, uh, challenge. And one of my roles now, uh, is, is that duty of care and, and, and looking at the, the, the balance athletes may or may not have when they're, uh, committing it to such a degree in order to, uh, to be the very best in the world goodness it takes it takes a heck of a, uh, a heck of a push <laughs> it takes a lot
0: now mm-hmm. when you so when you went to olympics number 2 uh, a little bit mm-hmm. really focused a little intensity there and along that way how do you find the confidence were you you know you talk a little you know you mentioned a little bit about anxiety and a little bit of the work you're doing mm-hmm. going into a competition did you find yourself quite naturally confident or were you always digging to find that confidence and walk the edge of maybe being a little too cocky or a little too big you know how do you balance confidence humbleness anxiety focus you know how is that mental state for you as you're going into olympics number two
1: yeah fantastic question because it's difficult to unpick it's uh so confidence is uh, is built in many ways based on work done, previous performance, et cetera. And then, you know, you've got uh, to get out of your head Actually, when you get to an Olympic Games and uh, and almost let it happen, which is the hardest thing in the world to do, Uh, because, you know, you are where you are. You've done the work that you've been able to do. You're as physically prepared as you possibly can. And it comes down to it. And in diving, it's um, unlike the javelin or the long jump where you take your best effort in diving. Every dive that you do in the Olympic final counts. And so if you make a slight mistake, then you're done. Uh, for four years. And that, if you start paying attention to that, uh, that can really start to uh, to put you off your stride, to say the very least. And so it becomes following what uh, we refer to as process, uh, so you know where is your attention? What are you focusing your energies on? And uh, ultimately, it's the, the stuff that you can do stuff about. And uh, it's almost like ignoring everything else that's going on, like the size of the crowd, the thousands of people in the uh, in the auditorium, the TV cameras, the fact that it is the Olympic Games, and you're often playing uh, tricks on yourself to try and distract. Uh, from the magnitude of the of the occasion and certainly in uh, in sydney i was focused too much on on outcome rather than process so i was so driven to winning a medal uh, that uh, you know it was my undoing in the end because uh, the strategies i had in place weren't weren't effective uh, you know ultimately the performance goal is, is 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 much more is better to focus on so i can't control who else is diving and how well they're diving but i can focus on my own performance so So a a particular level of performance. So an Olympic medal winning performance should be the focus. And then everyone else can do whatever they do and we'll see what happens. And it seems funny approaching it in that way. But actually, that is the only way uh, because I can't go over to... Canadians or the the US or the Chinese and kind of you know trip them over as much as I'd like to before they go in. I don't think that's uh, that's very sportsman's like and nor, uh, and I certainly wouldn't be trying to sabotage anyone else's performance. But you know it's it's it is what it is. The judges, the other performers in in this particular context. Uh, the only thing I can do is uh, is is what I, my performance ultimately as an individual or or in the uh, in the team setting.
0: So when you come away. From Olympics number two, you've got a lifetime into this this is eight years later you've gone through the second one you didn't medal in two thousand mm-hmm. are you now questioning whether you carry on the journey or are you more determined than ever
1: oh yeah this is uh, so this is where it gets really interesting because uh, obviously uh, you know had the uh, the the ebbs and flows and the highs and lows that You know, look at all my friends there. You know, they finish university, they've started real job, they're doing this. I'm doing this bloody stupid sport, blah, blah, blah. Oh, God, is it all worth it? No, it isn't. It's those judges, their fault. I want to kill. And then it's like fourth. Oh, and you know, and it would just fire me up so much. And I would be like, I am not. Being remembered, uh, you know, by myself, by others, whoever gives a monkey's about that. You know, I am not being remembered for coming fourth at Olympic Games. And ultimately, that heartbreak of standing on that poolside, looking up at that scoreboard and looking uh, where it said GBR and the number four next to it, and the points difference was tiny. And you know, that samurai sword of pain that came through me uh, was uh, was a source of drive and motivation for the next four years I can tell you and uh you know I often joke with with uh with people you know I'd, it'd be the alarm would go off in the morning and I'd be tired from the day before and the coach wasn't getting in until late and no one would really know if I wasn't there for the early morning dry land session the alarm would go off and then I would just hit snooze and then I would just be drifting back off to sleep and then I'd think fourth and I'd be in my car and on my way to training before, you know, anything else happened. And, and, you know, that was, that was the thing. So, you know, The setbacks, which are inevitable, you know, it's like the the things that don't go your way. You can utilize those and harness them. They are incredibly motivating or inspiring, and uh, and you can really use those. And that was certainly I needed that for those next four years because, um, sadly for me, I had some serious injuries, and in that period, I had two reconstructive shoulder surgeries. And if I hadn't had uh, that drive of coming forth, if I'd already won an Olympic medal. I wouldn't have come back from those surgeries because they were just too tough. The come, the 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 rehab, the challenge, the fact that I had one, it didn't quite work, and then came all the way back, and then had to have another, and it looked like it was all over. And then the story goes on. It, if it wasn't for the fact that I was so determined not to not to have fourth as my uh, as my offering, uh, and to come through that trauma. Um, And that, uh, that low point in my life and my career of those, those really, really tough testing surgical interventions, and then come out the other side, so resilient, so much more resilient, so much wiser and stronger that if I can deal with that, if I can get through that, which I have, then I can deal with, you know this thing coming up the Olympic games. And it's my third hit. So I know what I'm doing now. I've got some stuff that I can, you know, reflect on and, uh, and let's go for it.
0: Yeah. And I think I'm glad you brought up the injury component of it because you like many athletes, you're competing. I mean, you're training every day. You're kicking the shit out of your body, really. Mm -hmm. As much as you're looking after it, you're pushing it to extremes. So aside from the mental emotional push your physical push is high so then you you know cross a line you you know in your case you blow a shoulder or two and Mm -hmm. that's also Mm -hmm. on top of all the day-to-day stuff that you're dealing with so it's the reason i want to shine a light on it is because number one i think it's you know certainly important or it's helpful for people to understand especially as we're into the olympics at the time of this interview is to give people perspective of just what it takes to even get to an Olympics, let alone medal at an Olympics. There's a lot going on in behind the scenes. And i because I've had some exposure to it, I am deeply appreciative of just, wow, that's really, really amazing. So you now are a veteran going into your <laughs> third Olympics. Mm. You, you know that your mental state's important. You got to strike a balance between being in awe and being overly focused. You're going to try and have some mm-hmm. fun. And mm-hmm. you've been training, you've overcome the obstacles that you've come through. Mm-hmm. What's your kind of mindset going into it? Are you going, I got this? What's, what's your kind of your, your mental game plan? Because you've done all the other stuff. You've got your yeah. coaches, you've done yeah. your training, you've been eating right, you've been doing mm-hmm. all the things. So how are mm-hmm. you going into it mentally?
1: Yeah, so uh, our goal uh, and our focus was to be the best prepared team to set foot. Uh, On that poolside, best prepared, synchronized diving pair to set foot on that poolside. Uh, 2003, the year before those Olympic Games, uh, we were at the World Championships and, uh, you know, we were mixing it up with uh, with top teams, as you would expect. And uh, we were both Peter and I were fully fit. And at those World Championships in the beautiful city of Barcelona, uh, we came fourth. And uh, and (laughs) three quarters of the way through the Olympic cycle, having, you know, come through the two shoulder surgeries, come through depression, you know, made it back to full fitness. Everything's going well. We're in Barcelona. We're on for a medal. And then we get, you know, another reminder, the cruel mistress that sport is. And uh, and that was the best thing that could have happened to us because it did go. okay. right. So, you know we're fully fit. There are still things that we need to focus on. And, and we became so, um, committed to the process uh, that when we turned up at the um, Olympic Games in Athens, because we knew everything that was going to happen by way of schedule, we knew that we were on day one of the Olympic Games. We knew that we were competing at 10 o'clock at night so that we would have the whole day to basically shit ourselves about the (laughs) the competition that was coming. Could you imagine? But in order order to manage that, we were like, okay, so how are we going to do this? How are we going to be the best prepared team? So what we did, we did various things, which is commonplace in sport, but it was, you know, we use visualization. So, you know, that's a key fundamental skill that we all have as as human beings for whatever we're doing, because I couldn't invite 15,000 people to come and watch me at training to put some pressure on me. But I could take myself there in my mind's eye, the imagination is incredible. The unconscious mind, as you know, Patrick, can't tell the difference between reality and what's imagined. And so if you are able to take yourself there following that, uh, you know, visualization process, sight, sounds, colors, feelings, and it can actually put you in such an amazing, uh, resourceful state when you arrive in, uh, in the arena in the gladiatorial arena of the Olympic Games but the other thing that we did fundamentally is because we were on day one of the Olympic Games our build up to those games was fantastic by way of our access to the Olympic pool and so three days before we did what uh, actors would do which would be a full dress rehearsal so we we woke up or three days before the Olympic final and we behaved as if it was Olympic final day we'd already had this day plan fine tuned for weeks and we kept tweaking it so we got up and we acted as if it was Olympic final day we got up at the time we were going to get up we went off and had breakfast we went into the 7000 seater food hall and we sat in the exact section that we knew we were going to sit in we went up to all of the abundance choices of food including McDonald's and ice cream and anything you can get at any time in the Olympic Village and we ate what we knew we were going to eat because we'd already decided we walked around and we were just following this process we went to the training we came back we rested we had a power nap we went off for lunch we did this and then in the evening of the dress rehearsal we did an Olympic final where we dived and we went and sat down for 15 minutes and then we came out and we did our other dive and that that dress rehearsal was super smooth and uh, by the time we got to the end of the day Uh, we had pretty much automated, you know, what we were going to do. Now, that said, you've got to respond to stuff on the day. But the confidence that that gave us, and to come back to your question, did you arrive at those Olympic Games thinking, I've got this, you know, the Olympic final day, the day that you would definitely predict that nerves would be around, I was in the right state. We walked around and it wasn't is this going to be good? It was, how good is this going to be? Now, I couldn't tell you whether that was going to be Von Silver Gold or an agonizing fourth, but I knew that we were the most resourceful. We were in the right state. And it wasn't if, it was how good is it going to be?
0: So you compete, you win silver. Mm -hmm. And as you're standing on the podium and... how how is that for you how are you feeling about that what was that like yeah,
1: yeah. so it's an incredible uh, incredible moment so we were the last pair to dive and so um whatever we did on our final dive when you look at the scoreboard in the bottom right hand corner whatever number comes up is uh, is is where you are and i remember you know up until you know hitting the water on the final dive we were following a plan a process we were cool calm and collected we were in the zone And then, of course, the funny thing happens is that uh, I reach a point in my existence where I don't have a plan because I didn't really consider what I would do if I achieved the goal of winning a medal. I looked at the scoreboard for the first time in the competition. The number two came up and I was suddenly like, whoa, you know. Or, or whatever else I was saying in my, and then I've got um, amnesia after that because I can't remember. It must be half an hour. I can't remember through my own eyes what it was like because the emotions and uh, the relief, the ecstasy, the bliss, the excitement—it just sends you into a uh, a, a different dimension. And, and the point that I came back around, if you like, Pat, was when I'm standing there about to be announced to stand on the podium to to receive. What is a 20 year dream of winning an, an Olympic medal? And uh and I can't stop giggling. <laughs> I'm stood next to Pete and I'm that six year old who was naughty at school, always in trouble. You know, that it was just regressed to that point where I set that dream and, and I suppose people ask me, How does it feel? What was it like? And I said, oh, No, it's just giggling. I just couldn't, yeah, can't put any words on it. It was just that was the that was the feeling right there.
0: Was that the end for you? Like, did you know then that this was be your last Olympics or your your last time that you're going to go for it? Did you actually go? I'm done.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you asked that because um, no, hell no, Uh, and the reason uh, it 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 wasn't was a combination. So um, when I was six, I watched Daley Thompson win the gold, and uh, and uh, it's a funny feeling when you win a a silver medal at the Olympic Games because uh, I was absolutely delighted and you know it was incredible and uh, there's a bit of me that was pissed off that it wasn't gold (laughs) so and that's being completely honest and uh and so after you know doing the quite rightly letting everything you know settle down after the Olympic Games which involves a lot of clinking of glasses and eating of all the you know foods that you've avoided and saying yes to all the parties that you've said no to and um, and then you settle back down and uh, and I was like yeah I'm not done. I know I'm old uh, in diving terms, but you know what? I've been through a hell of a four-year period. It's going to be a push, but I'm so mentally strong. Beijing is four years away. Wouldn't it be great if I was writing a fairy tale? If I was writing my story, it would be, you know, fourth silver, gold retires, lives happily ever after, invests in real estate, or you know, something. <laughs> sure. <of course. laughs> yeah, something like that. And so that was my driving force. So I I knew that it was going to be tough. I was under no illusions, but I. You know, figured that I could give it a good go, and actually, I made it all the way until uh, 2008. And it was uh, a month before the Olympic trials where the medical team finally told me enough was enough. They showed me the uh, the red card, and my body could no longer handle what I was asking it to do. But you know what? It would you know if my body could have hung on, it would have been a really interesting games to compete at for me because uh yeah the opportunity would have been there once again but you know four olympic games is greedy isn't it patrick so i think uh you know, you've got to step away sometime
0: <laughs> now aside from the fact that you won the medal i mean it was it was a, also a really big deal for great britain i mean it was a a long time coming that they had actually had a medal that wasn't it a number of years
1: yeah, no, you've got it. Yeah. So first, first uh, Olympic diving medal for Team GB for 44 years. Wow. And, uh, yeah, because, uh, a couple of things happened because we were on day one of those Olympic games in Athens, it meant that the British media, that was our first Olympic medal and the British media were great because they're like, what we've won it in diving. What's diving, you know, it's t- typical, you know, didn't have a clue about diving, you know, synchronized diving, didn't even know that was an Olympic event. And so it's like 11 o'clock at night, all the journalists are in the bar, you know, g- Drowning their sorrows because Team GB haven't won any medals, and then we suddenly win one in the diving. It's a surprise to them, and then for the first couple of days of those Olympic Games, we we didn't win any medals. Uh, so diving was in the spotlight, and that was uh, you know where it's remained ever since. It's uh, through a number of, uh, of of reasons, and the success of British diving has, has continued. Um, and it was uh, Peter and I that that started that with a bang a number of years ago now and uh and a surprise bang at that
0: so you get the card the red card as you said from your mm-hmm. physicians and mm-hmm. so then you wake up the next day and kind of go now what
1: <sighs> no luckily not uh, so i yeah could you imagine so i i, I know athletes that, that that's actually happened to so so for me my uh, reality check happened as i mentioned in uh uh, after sydney in 2001 after the second olympic games i'm all guns blazing and then i have um you know a career ending injury which uh, basically needs surgery and i've given it, i'm given an arbitrary 30% chance of making it back and i i suddenly had to take stock of where i was at and have a look at leon uh you know outside of leon the olympic athlete and go hang on a second leon you know you've got a lot of eggs in one basket here uh, what you know this this could be over fortunately for me it wasn't and uh it was enough of a reality check for me to start to go okay what if it is over what if it was over you know you need to uh to focus on uh on at least having some options in um in other ways because I paused my undergraduate studying to focus on on uh, on my pursuit of you know my athletic endeavors and it wasn't uh yeah i was I was caught short luckily for me I was able to make it back from the from the injury that i've uh, referred to uh but I was able to then start to strike a bit of a balance. I was looking at the other areas of my life and realizing, okay, so what else am I interested in? What do other people think that I would be good at? Because I didn't know, because I was a super focused athlete, and uh, people were like, "Hey, Leon, you'd be great on TV." And you know, why don't you do the commentary? Because you're always complaining about the, the you know, the commentary, and you know, and blah blah blah. And there was a few things that uh, in those conversations perked my interest. And so over that that period of time, up into Athens when I won my medal, and then subsequently, I started to develop relationships and interests in areas outside of sport particularly in the media and then ultimately as a uh, as a speaker and a presenter which is uh, something that uh scared the life out of me when I first started to consider it and uh, and then ultimately became something that I became a a huge thrill for me in the way that my sport provided a a performance Kick or a buzz, if you like, it was something that that became the the live audience, the oration, uh, the standing there and and sharing messages and, and guiding became something that was uh, exciting and thrilling for me, and, and became a focus very very quickly.
0: You went on, and I still, I believe you still do some commentary for diving and the uh, BBC, I, I believe. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And then you're doing corporate gigs where you're actually going in and, and doing some work with management teams and trying to get them to elevate and pick up their game, give them a focus. Mm-hmm. So you, you're bringing that, I guess, that experience as an athlete, the focus, the mindset into a new world. That's kind of the other side of the medal for you right now. And, mm-hmm. and it has been for a while. When you consider that business owners, corporate structures What do you think you bring to the table that you've learned over the years as an athlete that you encourage them to kind of look at in their own world of how they run their businesses or how the corporate management team work together? What are some of the things that you bring into those conversations, Leon?
1: Yeah, certainly. So there's um, I find it fascinating uh, because for me, uh, when I first ventured into into different worlds, it was uh, it was all confusing and, you know, it all looks so different. But actually, when you start to drill down into into structure uh, and and finding what what's going on, you find that that the key to to any performance is, is how someone shows up. Uh, you know, you use that turn of phrase yourself during our interview. And 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 for me, it's very easy uh, for all of us to get distracted by, you know, all of the stuff that's going on, the things that we have to do or the challenges and such like. Um, and it's very easy to forget that uh, that we can always choose our attitudes, you know, our attitudes, behaviors and beliefs. That's something which, um, you know, fundamentally, I didn't realize I was learning as an athlete was you know that ability to choose one's attitude in in, in any situation, and and uh, you know I feel that there's uh, a, a lot to be gained by looking outside of the context that you're operating in, where you know other high performance or performance takes place, and looking at you know the strategies, the the, the techniques that are in place, but also the belief systems and uh, and the ways of um, of showing up. That the people can adopt, and it uh, and it's based in reality. It's based, you know. There's a lot of uh, very interesting scientific research in you know, cognitive psychology, sports psychology, etc. And um, and it's like, cleaning, well, what is the the minimum effective dose, if you will? Like, what is it in this situation? Can you do at any time that's going to make a difference? And uh, you can complicate things a lot, and there's lots of distractions out there. Uh, and for me, it's 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 finding. You know the recipe of things, strategies that work for a particular individual, and how they can be, how they can show up and be their very best, and ultimately enable others to do the same by inspiring. You know, not by what they necessarily say, but by what they do. uh, What behaviors are they displaying?
0: Do you find in your work with business owners, corporations, that I use the like to use the term is it's not about the goal, it's who you have to become to achieve the goal is actually the goal. It mm-hmm. is in the who you're being to achieve the goal that, that you have to really focus on. And so many times I see business owners, cause I do a lot of coaching with business owners and real estate investors. And they, you know, mm-hmm. tell me how, tell me how, tell me how. And ultimately mm-hmm. as much as it is about the how, I mean, that's pretty straightforward. It's, you know, A plus B equals C. The hows are pretty straightforward, but it's who you have to, show up as to actually engage and take action on the house, become really a primary focus. And much of your journey as a, as an athlete was more, as much mental for sure, is what I'm hearing, as it was in terms of how do you produce a dive that's awesome physically. So do you see that in, in the world of business? Do you sometimes see where people just Get caught up in where you're looking at them, going. You know how, but you're you're an ass. You need to shift what your focus is around how you're showing up. Is you see that happening?
1: Yeah, frequently, frequently. It's uh, you know, the, the knowing and doing, and and I think we're the we're the sum of our habits, and uh, you, you know that's uh, that's the fundamental. It's like what are, what are you doing every day in order to uh, to it's, it, and it's you know if you want to make sustainable change, it can it's a slog and it's you know what are the the small changes making those habits sticky and not looking for the you know the the luck of the roll of the dice or the quick win or the the shortcut or the ultimate hack and all these things which may or may not exist it's like well actually are you showing up each day? Are you, are you doing what needs to be done? Are you, are you taking your turn? Um, Are you taking responsibility for, you know, for what's going on? It's easy to, to hide and to, you know, to, to build this uh, mystique around, oh yeah, it's this, it's that, but you know, know, fundamentally, are you showing up and, and taking your turn? And if you are, and those habits will, you know, will stick, and ultimately, you know, it, you will weather the ups and the downs, which are in, in, inevitable in whatever uh, industry or or business that you uh, you find yourself in, because uh, it's never, never, ever plain sailing, as we both know, as as all of your your listeners will know, it's. Uh, you know it's how do you respond to a setback how do you take on a challenge how do you are you inspired by the success of others or does it make you uh make you jealous in a, in a, in a negative way and and what, what do you like when you get uh, criticism uh, or or feedback do you take that on board and are you the kind of person who goes right okay i'm here to commit to, to put effort into to build these habits or am i here just to look good in the uh, i don't know whatever light it might be
0: you're 40
1: I believe I am indeed
0: and you're still incredibly athletic and you train daily still I believe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about when you talk about habits and you, you use the the term process when you were talking about mm-hmm. the process that you as a team showed up mm-hmm. for at the Final Olympics and mm-hmm. there is a process there is really you know trust the process and know that it it goes to work it does work and sometimes it doesn't work the way we want it to but Tell me a little bit about your daily routine now that you're not a professional athlete. You're working into the world of business and supporting corporations and working there and speaking and doing color. What's your day? What's your routine? What time do you get up? And tell me about your day.
1: Yeah, great. So the, the, one of the, the biggest uh, changes that I had to figure out, which took a while, is, uh, OK, so now keeping uh, fit isn't my job. How do I do it? <laughs> like what do I do? And the challenge for me was that I was broken. Uh, four reconstructive shoulder surgeries, worn out disc in between L5 and S1, hernia surgery and the bloody medical team saying that, you know, uh if I was a horse, it would be uh, it would be lights out. Put and you and down. so there wasn't Yeah, exactly. It's time to to yeah, put me down. So anyway, the same conversation continued and I said, Well, you know, what can I do? They said, well, you've got to stop doing everything you're doing, all of the high impact, all of the weight training, basically all of the stuff I enjoyed. And they said, you must try something like yoga. And at the time is 2008 and I'm a, you know, uh, uh, an adrenaline junkie. And I'm like, what? And, uh, and ultimately I didn't know what, uh, you know, what yoga was. Certainly it was an ignorance on my part, but I kind of, didn't really understand. So I remember sending an email, you know, out to to all of my friends network saying, right, you lot, <laughs> I need to do yoga. Uh, I've been online and I'm confused as hell. I don't know which one to do. Any suggestions? Welcome. And uh, and ultimately, I ended up uh, doing my first yoga class in a heated room in uh, in 2008. Um, just uh, two weeks after I announced my my retirement on the, live on the BBC, the same day I signed my contract to commentate at those uh, upcoming Olympic games, and um, and I did my first yoga class, and it was in the heated room. It kicked my ass. Uh, which I didn't think it would. And it became something that I, uh, because the medical team's encouragement, really focused on. And um, within six months of practicing almost every day or as many days of the week as I could, in six months of practicing yoga in a hot room, I was uh, pain-free for the first time in what must have been over five years. And also I was in a different place uh, emotionally and mentally as well. So the movement with the breath, the calming, you know, asana practice, the movement practice of yoga would have been extraordinary, not only to, to rebalance my unbalanced and broken body, but also to settle me down as an adult, as a transition from, uh, you know, high pressure, high performance sport into this next step. And um, ultimately, that the yoga is has been an integral part of my well-being. So yes, it contributes to my fitness and, uh, you know, well-being and health. I never paid attention to To because my body was a performance thing. It was a vehicle. I didn't quite refer to it in that way. But you know, I would push it and the limits would push back and I'd go again. And and what what happened is that lovely gift that the medical team, you know, directed me towards, and then my experience of wow, this is how different it could be, allowed me to then start to be a little bit more adventurous again with what activities I got involved in. And the yoga is the staple for me. And all the other activities off the top of it are you know I wouldn't be able to dive again because of damage done but I'm pretty good with with most things now and it's freed me up to uh to be uh a very active and pain free in uh in the years that I'm approaching so
0: heated yoga as in bikram that kind of heat or
1: yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. to start with, it was uh, yeah. So this is back in uh, yeah 2008. So it was Bikram yoga. You're right. And then subsequently, within a within a year, I decided to to set a goal to uh, to become a teacher because uh, a yoga teacher specifically because I wanted to share what I'd experienced with certainly people in my situation, as in you know broken athletes, uh, those who are still competing and those who weren't. But I had a really strong story of actually I can't stand up with my back with my back because I'm in severe chronic pain and now it's gone away and uh, and that was uh, a, an exciting opportunity for me which ultimately led me to where I am now teaching yoga and uh, partner to uh, to Ali and it's uh, yeah a delight to be part of her business also as uh, as a chain of uh, yoga centers here in the UK but also as a very successful teacher training company uh, which we run at uh, you know different spots around around Europe uh, teaching uh, teachers to become teachers <laughs>
0: Listeners should know that Bikram yoga, aside from the stretch and all the things that go, it's actually very intense. It's 90 minutes Mm -hmm. of 40 degree, 100 degree Fahrenheit heat. Mm -hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. intense. It's not like I found Bikram and I did a lot of Bikram uh, over the years and uh, was really committed to it for a while. But there's a mental part of Bikram that takes a lot to get through that 90 minutes when they're Mm. constantly stretching you even more was yeah there's a mental game to it I just share that as a as a side note agreed so you're you're now entrepreneurial you 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 and Ali are doing your your business your yoga business and your corporate coaching and the work that you do was there ever a a thought about having a job or, or do you think you just always had an entrepreneurial spirit that morphed out of being an athlete and doing what you did how did that entrepreneurial side of you start to show up Leon
1: Yeah, so it it, it was a surprise uh, to me because um – well the thing I hated the most if I can use "hates" a strong word but the thing I despised the most about being an athlete was the structure and the institution of elite sport where just I periodized training plan I knew what I was doing in three months time I was training for this this and this it was so structured I could, couldn't take any time off at Christmas but I'd have three and a half weeks off in the summer after the world championships or the Olympic games and it was this amazing structure and I just wanted to break free and then when I broke broke free, um the thing I missed the most was the structure. (laughs) Of course. Of course. And it was a funny thing. And 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 honestly I um I guess, as many athletes do, I had a choice. So, as I was coming to to the end of my career, you know, one of the options would have been to stay in the sport in a big way. Uh, You know, maybe take my love of of people and performance and become a diving coach. And if I'd have made that decision, then that would have been a a a limiting one in in my opinion for me because it would have would not have given me the opportunity to grow and explore elsewhere. I would have been very, very, very specialised. I would have totally married myself to the sport and I you know made a conscious decision to go where well, you can always go back to the sport so I stayed connected through the the commentary that I uh, do provide for the for the BBC and the mentoring that I uh, am delighted to do and I do all of my mentoring uh, for free because it's something that uh, I Get a lot out of as, as per our conversation earlier and uh I, I, and it keeps me close to the sports uh sport that i you know particularly my sport but sport in general and that uh you know that excitement of sport even though i'm not competing at that level now i can be part of it uh the you know the metaphor of the names on the back of the medal uh future medals
0: yeah it gets to be really exciting and empowering when you get to be part of somebody else's journey and and share in their success and be a part of their success. I think for you, incredibly important, you know, the little bit of time that I've got to know you, for you to be fully expressed, being a coach, just a one-on-one or one-on-team coach was just not big enough for you. Uh, That's my own impression of it. And uh, that's just how you show up. Go back. I want to just keep digging in a little bit to the practice, your own day to day practice. You know, are you? Oh, yes. Of yeah, yeah. So. That's all good. How, are you an early riser, Leon?
1: Uh, yes. So I'm definitely, uh, yeah, I'm definitely an early bird. But my my schedule varies a lot, so I, I've had to learn to be quite adaptable. But left to my own devices i'm uh yeah early to rise and early to bed i've um learned over the years the importance of sleep no and point. uh and, and and quality of sleep and and more so now now that i'm working with stressed out executives that's unfair of me to label them in that way but let's just go with it anyway and 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 you know sleep you know there seems to be Wrongly, in my opinion, this badge of honour of oh yeah, I only need X amount of sleep. But if you have a look at the research and you know, the the functionality and, and the the importance of sleep, it is the bedrock to anyone's uh, well being. So certainly, I I live by my principles that I that I coach by, and certainly for me, uh, sleep and recovery as well is something that I'm uh, I'm I'm very aware of. So yes, morning routine would be up early. First thing to do is a yoga and meditation practice. So that could be it varies depending on my schedule so it would be a minimum of five minutes of of yoga and uh it's you know when you're forming habits even if you can't do as much as you need to if you just do a little bit of it it just ingrains the habit so there's the one of my fundamental principles there of routine and, and habit is so even if i'm traveling to the airport to fly to somewhere in europe and i'm uh, my taxi is at 4:15 a.m i will get up five minutes earlier than i need to and the first thing i do is some sun salutations so it's not actually you know going to improve my yoga practice but it's what it's doing is activating my my human nervous system from a physiological point of view and I'm breathing properly and I'm not falling foul to starting my day on the wrong foot by picking up my phone and looking at a whatever a non-urgent message which is dressed up as urgent or whatever the distractions that come in so I have this uh, morning routine which uh, starts with with a physical practice of, of yoga and also sometimes with an extended meditation sit which has been something I've found incredibly challenging being highly wired high practice whatever we want to whether so for me to be able to to sit and concentrate and do focus and commit to a meditative practice has been a huge challenge, one which I'm continuing to take on and uh, I keep thinking I'm making headway and then I get humbled and then we go again. And I, you know, but I am committed to it and it uh, shows up at different points in the day. And I take opportunities now to really switch off and, and, and move and practice that uh, lovely introspection by, uh, you know, tuning out the um, outside world and and uh, uh, moving in. And I find that massively restorative as well.
0: I believe you're vegan as well. Is that correct?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's right. So I'm uh, well, I would be lying if I said I was full vegan. So I would say by just for a whole food plant based diet. And, uh, you know, there are occasions I, you know, aspire to the to be the best make the best decisions I can. And so I would say 80 to 90% of the time, I'm whole food plant based and then 10% I'm, I'm doing my best under the circumstances.
0: It's interesting something I want to go back to sleep for just a moment. It's so important. And, you know, interestingly enough for me is that I I didn't wear it as a badge of honor, but I, you know, in terms of sleep, but I just found that I was functioning well on six hours, five hours, six hours, you know, seven hours, eight hours of sleep for me to this day is like sleeping in, but I don't walk around feeling tired, but I am very becoming very, very aware, gosh, this late in my life that seven and a half or eight hours of sleep for me is I realized just how much better I feel, how much clearer I am, how much more capacity I have. My mood is, is different. And it's, and and it's interesting that I'm only becoming really aware of that now, just how much I actually, I have to, for me, I have to work at sleep. It has to become part of my practice. Mm -hmm. And even in the Mm -hmm. evening, you know, going to bed early, I'm up at five. So, you know, I'm trying to always be asleep before 10. I don't, I don't often hit it, but you know, 1030 is like, okay, I can pull that one off. But it is a constant Mm -hmm. challenge to getting great sleep becomes a practice as opposed to just putting up with whatever it is. And, and so that's how I've, I've certainly just only become aware of that. So it's interesting you bring it up. It seems to be a big topic these days.
1: Yeah, no, agreed, and it's uh, you, you know it it is challenging, and I think uh, we get sometimes, uh, and I've uh, also been distracted by the number, and everyone's number is different, i.e., number of hours that one needs in order to to you know operate at their optimum efficiency, if you like. But I I like to focus on on quality uh, of, and so I'm very much aware of you know the the, the, you know, the settings, and um, you know sometimes it's difficult when you're traveling a lot, you've got di- hotel rooms or 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 different bits and pieces. So it's like, okay, so what is my pre-bed routine and what is my morning routine? And if you get those nailed and you can take those with you, then it's uh, it's something that uh, makes a massive difference. So we talk about it a lot and I'm sure you do in your coaching settings. It's like, okay, so what are the things that are serving you? What are the things that aren't? And the device usage and what you're doing in the lead up to sleep makes a massive difference to the quality that you you actually get, isn't it? So if you're, uh, you know, just before bed, if you're on computers, uh, diff- any devices at all, that can throw you uh, from a quality point of view. So uh, even though you spent the right amount of time in the bedroom, it means that uh, you're not getting the quality you need. And that's where I'm fine tuning at the moment, finding that uh, that quality as well as the quantity.
0: Yeah, certainly one of the things that have shown up for me is staying off of anything electronic. I, you know, I'm a business owner and, and I'm pretty busy all the time, which is fine. I love that part of it, but I really have come to realize for me that shutting off my phone at a certain time, you know, after 8pm kind of thing, I don't look at social media. First thing in the morning when I get up, I eat first thing in the morning and, and I do some journaling, my meditation, my workout. But I literally do not look at my phone until probably 7 or 7.30 in the morning, other than in Canada, if I have a call in the morning generally with my partner, he's three hours ahead of me. So I'll have a call with him in the morning. But other than that, I just don't look at social media. I just really honor that practice of getting grounded to start my day and to finish my day. Mm-hmm. How are you around yeah, social great. media, Leon?
1: Yeah, I do you know I'm, I, I think it's a constant battle. Isn't so it? I, Isn't it? Uh, yeah. I, I haven't got my uh, my head around it uh, properly yet. So, um, you know, I reluctantly kind of come along with it because I understand the connectivity and the benefits and, uh, you know, being part of it. And from a promotional point of view, it's important that I can engage with people who are interested and I can uh, be part of conversations, which often happen on, on social media. But I it just it I just noticed the behaviors and the the timeline trance that you end up in and, and, and such like so uh, for example I'm not on Instagram but actually that would be the one that I would probably be most interested in being on if it hadn't come out you know so long into the into the social media because there's so many things to keep on top of and it becomes uh, a tyranny and I watch people who yeah it's a very very challenge i find it compelling when uh, i meet someone who says uh, i'm not on facebook i'm not on social media and i go yeah. how interesting yeah. really nice to meet you tell me more and i find that so compelling but i think operating in a world as we do as uh, as entrepreneurs as business owners as connectors as as people who keep conversations alive and it's it's a yeah, how do you do it without it? I mean it's a it's you know, how do you do it right? How do you do it healthily? I suppose that's the way. It's what's your relationship? Everything's a relationship. So, what's your relationship with it? So, yeah, work in progress for me. How about you? Yeah,
0: same thing, you know, it's it, I I'm much much more disciplined. I you don't realize the addiction of it until you realize it and then it becomes for me almost Holy cow! I gotta own my own time, and I can't get. I'm just not prepared to be dragged down this rabbit hole on a, on an ongoing mm. basis. So the research I've done around just how they play to people's addiction is uh, mm. very, very fascinating and interesting. It's so, very,
1: very clever people doing very clever things, oh, aren't they? they, and, they, aren't you know, they? Huts okay. off hats off to their uh, their skill set. But my word, I need to uh, take a step uh, step away. <laughs>
0: so tell me a little bit about your coaching and in terms of your executive coaching, Leon, are you working one-on-one with executives or are you mostly in a team environment? What's your kind of model for operating right
1: now yeah yeah so this is uh, probably the newest uh, part to my business if you will uh, where I was uh, looking at the enjoyment that I got out of um, uh, working one-to-one with my mentees and I was looking at the skill sets I was building working you know as a, as a speaker and a presenter then corporate uh, organizations were asking you know we'd like a bit more and so I was developing offerings on uh, I'd do a keynote on mentoring and then I would facilitate a mentor skills workshop, so the, you know, the conversational skills and skills that a, a mentor would would be looking to develop, and 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 also thinking, okay, this is uh, this is really exciting uh, working in this way. And then I uh, started to get very interested in you know what this world of executive coaching actually in, entailed, and um, I started to st- study. You know, I worked with the Academy of Executive Coaching over here, got the, uh, the the diploma, so I could understand the landscape and how and how it works and. Uh, what's really interesting uh, for me is that um, that part of my business I've uh, I've grown very organically, and I'm very selective over who I uh, work with for good reason because um, it's uh, it's an intense uh, relationship. Certainly, the way that I like to work, and I intense in a good way. So I come from sport where I am constantly under the microscope and given feedback at all times, like fully accountable you said you were doing this have you done it yet such like and i noticed a lot of executive coaching programs were um very different so example would be you would see someone once a month for a couple of hours i was like wow how does how does that work? You know, how do you make a, a, a change in, in in that respect? And I was like, okay, so how do I uh, see this working for me? So what I've developed in my coaching offering is is around you, you know performance and wellness. So I'm interested in conversations around what's getting in your way, what's the thing that's holding you back, like what's the real stuff that's going on here. And then we go off outside of work, obviously, and end up in some very interesting and you know, challenging uh, places. So I, I spend a lot of time, you know, bouncing around in in, in, in personal as well as professional. And, and ultimately, that's the real stuff. Um, and also the balance and the wellness and the way that I can provide the best value, most value, best service is being there all the time, not quite 24 seven, but I, uh, I, uh, sign up with, uh, with my coaches who I, you know, is uh, carefully select and give, make sure that they're okay with the way that I work as well. And it's a retainer per month and, uh, and I'm there for them. And so, uh, when they say, okay, what day is this day? It's Monday. I'm going to do this by Wednesday. I'm there on the telephone on Wednesday going, how are you going? Has, uh, have you done it? What was it like? How did you go? And, and, and that level of, uh, commitment means that I take on a few clients and, uh, yeah, and I, you know, charge appropriately for it because it's, uh, it's high accountability. And that's set out uh, from the start. And it's, uh, and I find that really rewarding. I uh, thoroughly enjoy those relationships.
0: Do you have a coach yourself? I do. Yeah. Is it along the lines of personal professional development?
1: Yes, it is. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you find that? You know, as a coach myself, I've actually don't do a lot of one-on-one coaching anymore on a, on a regular basis. I, I mean, I touch base with people and, and that's part of our business model is I'm happy to have conversations with the community of the Real Estate Investment Network, Rain, but I'm kind of this many years into it. I find that people say they want a coach, but then they're really not coachable and they don't understand what being coachable even really means. Do you find that in your own screening process i know that stephanie has a coach i mean it's really hard to get stephanie to coach you i mean by the time you go through her filter system to come out <laughs> the other end it's like you know one in a hundred is what ends up coaching but is that what you're talking about as well Is that your interview process and people understanding that there's one thing to get coached there's another to be coachable
1: and, mm-hmm. and, and you mm-hmm. bump
0: up against, especially in the corporate world with executives, A-type personalities, all of the things mm-hmm. that you bump up against with them. Is, is that your experience as well, Leon?
1: yeah completely and uh you know that's the uh, that is the most important step of any relationship is is that conversation about the conversations that you're going to have so whether that's in the in the mentoring world or in the coaching world yes. Yeah. so I like Steffi too I don't have a checklist in front of me but you know I'm running through lots of things and you know the conversation you know there's been times where I'm quite cheeky and provocative I just you say do you know what I think an average coach would uh would serve you you know nothing you've told me is of any interest so I think that you'll be fine you know finding you know Know, and just be really pushing people and they go no 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 hang on a second no i i you know and i and i want to see that uh that fire in there in in their eyes and you know i'm very very cheeky and you know i i enjoy having fun uh whilst in a you know highly accountable environment you know pushing the boundaries support and challenge uh and getting permission to behave in in that way and in order to to set that up for success to begin with it's yeah you've got to be on the same page haven't you
0: you and Ali have the yoga studios and what's your future? What's your, what does it look like for you around your yoga studios and your business going forward? Do you have a pretty clear vision and some goals that you're working backwards from, Leon?
1: Yeah. Do you know what's really interesting? So at that, uh, exciting stage in our, in our lives where, you know, we've, uh, established, uh, you know, our, our business and, and to, you know, let's let me go on back with saying that it's Ali's, uh, Ali's yoga empire. And I'm delighted to be to be part of it as her, uh, her loving and uh, an and obedient sometimes partner, and uh, <laughs> sometimes and I have obedience. my yeah <laughs> you have my interest and of course she gets to come to the wonderful body holiday with me every year and and, and spend some time so yeah. we have this uh incredible uh life of, of freedom and flexibility and contribution as well so we're, we're both doing you know what we uh you know found through following our hearts and our joy and excitement really and and it's again to the point now where um, it's like, okay, so what else and what next? And, um, and, and I think there's a a phase a stage that we're going through where you know there's there's change of foot not big change you know there's there's stuff that we've we've got we uh you know we're looking at ideas of maybe relocating maybe coming over to to north america and 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 coming over and uh and setting some stuff up out there in in different areas i mean the you know the the thing that i'm excited about is is having conversations in areas i don't know very much about so this isn't a conversation for you and I to have now but um, um, you know, uh, real estate isn't something that I'm very familiar with. It's not something that I've spent a lot of time looking at. And uh, having spent some time uh, chatting to you, listened to a few of your, uh, your podcast guests previously, I'm now very curious. It's like, oh. I'd love to find out more, and what what better resource to have a conversation with on a on a private Skype call than than with you to to find out about areas that I don't know about and and think is, is that something that's going to be exciting? So yes, we've have goals. I personally have goals in the coaching, the performance area, the stretching of boundaries, and and the continuation of of, of the areas of interest, but also in new areas and finding out. Uh, yeah, finding out more because I always remind myself that when I was stood on a diving board uh, going after, you know, Olympic medals, I had no idea what a downward facing dog is. And I do a downward facing dog every single day. And so I'm like, OK, so what's the next thing I know nothing about that will become an integral part of my life and my existence? And uh, and I think that's uh, an exciting place to, to be at, you know, 40 years old and, you know, training for my first Ironman uh, triathlon in a few months time and you know taking on uh, you know these uh, challenges and uh, and looking for new excitement and stimulation in a good way um i'm feeling that uh, it's uh that uncertainty that we all have is exciting for me
0: well there's two things that show up for me number one stephanie and i are got some plans to be in london in 2018 so definitely we're going to begin to get looking yet secondly we live in the vancouver area so i think that you and ali coming out here and i think we're We're going to do a workshop out here is what we're going to do. So we're going to start mixing that up. We're going to have some fun because I've heard you speak. I've certainly watched some of your video. I had a brief experience of a little workshop that you did at the body holiday, which was Mm -hmm. awesome, by the way. You're great. So I certainly see doing some work around that area going forward. So I look forward to that part of it. What is the, for you, when you look at the discipline you had, the structure you had, you're an athlete, that mindset that kind of drove you, kept you going. Are you seeing where that also knowing yourself as well as you do now, are you seeing where you're tapping into those same resources of, and being really aware of how you're showing up, how you're being, looking at, this is how I was an athlete and this is how I'm going to do my life going forward. Is there a crossover of that mental state, that kind of development of yourself at Leon?
1: Yeah, certainly. I think um, for me, the most interesting part of, of that is unlearning some stuff for the benefit of others. I think as a, uh, as an athlete, there's certain the group of behaviors which one could display which are effective in that setting that aren't effective outside of that setting so obsessive compulsive self-centered you know (laughs) and all all of those uh you know attributes which uh, behaviors which you can turn on in order to be able to say no to your best friend when they invite you to their wedding to say you know no to your current girlfriend who grandfather sadly passed away and you can't go to the funeral to be quite high on the psychopathy scale by way of lack of empathy and all that kind of stuff when you don't need to behave in that way anymore um it's actually interesting to unlearn unwind some of those those behaviors so that drive you know i shouldn't approach deadlines in that way that urgency that need to get things done which um was maybe appropriate for the setting of elite sport isn't appropriate over. So I catch myself now noticing some of those ingrained behaviors, mm. whether it's competitiveness or the need to be right. You know, I've never showed uh, vulnerability before or, you know, always you know, had a really strong need to be right. And, you know, there's there's all these things still you know, uh, as patterns do, they show up. And and I think my self-awareness is, uh, is improving. And, uh, you know, my empathy certainly is, uh, it, it is there and, and, um, it's being nurtured a lot more as is my creativity. I was um, very structured before, you know, one pointed focus and that was it. And it was like, vroom. now I'm like, well, hang on. There's lots of different opportunities. And I've been enjoying creating a bit of flexibility to some of my my uh, My behaviors, and so yeah i 've got to be careful in some environments because I can roll up my sleeves and become you know a type A, right this is what we 're doing, follow me away we go, which may be the right thing for me to do, but actually now i 'm learning a lot more by stepping back by actively listening by you know learning uh, learning from others, and I think the, one of the big things for me is I had no idea how rewarding. It was being, you know, involved in someone else's performance. Uh, you know, the the metaphor I've already used, the names on the back of the medal, because it was all about me when I was an athlete. And then after your life, after uh, after sport, it was a real eye opener how much intrinsic reward, enjoyment, and uh, and yeah, pure joy you can gain by serving others. And I think that for me is is where it's at.
0: Yeah, I think you you, know, you hit it right on when you talk about the level of focus and certainly an intensity that you have to have when you're on a journey to as an athlete to Olympics. And it is pretty self-centered. It has to be. Mm-hmm. But that mm-hmm. that can show up. So when you said unwinding it, I go, yeah, stepping back, slowing down, actually putting your attention on others and being able to take those skills that you've developed And learned along your journey and actually sharing them with other athletes, but also just with people in general around what it takes to have success. How do you define success, Leon?
1: I personally define success quite simply. It's, you know, are you getting what you're going after? Uh, so, success could be I've successfully formed a habit of not looking at my bloody phone in the morning <laughs> until after 10 a.m. So, that's success. Success could also be a big, lofty goal by way. So, I think it's fundamental future pacing, isn't it? It's okay. So, here's what I want to achieve. And it could be a very short term thing by tomorrow, or it could be a longer term goal. So, I think it's just, you know, achieving what what you what you set out to do but the bigger thing like well what is success to you it is like success isn't necessarily the right word it's like what's important to me now is is you know there's certain things there's the the fun element the, the question of okay uh, is what I'm doing today enjoyable uh, and exciting and if it isn't then what are the reasons, specific reasons why I'm doing it? Unless there are specific reasons why I'm doing it uh, in order to lead to fun, enjoyment and stimulation, then I kind of go, well, okay, so what is it? What is it that we're doing here? And having, as many of us have, you know, lost people, you know, f- from our lives early, and uh, you know, uh, I deliver things. You know, the top five regrets of you know the, the dying, and all these you know great stuff that gives you a reframe on uh, on what are you actually doing here. Um, I think it's you know finding the the, the joy in every uh, in every day, showing up and, and and paying attention rather than being distracted too much by by the future, uh, but still paying enough attention to it.
0: Leon, I could keep going on because I want to dig into a lot, but I, I think I, would have got to, I want to be respectful of your time. So as, we're, as we wind down here and then plan for the next time I have you on the show. Great. Because there's so many places we can go with this whole conversation and the focus of athletes and where, you've, where you're where you taking your vision. I want to certainly want to get caught up with that in the future. So I'd like to just wind things down with a little bit of a rapid fire segment. Sounds good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you fire quick, so... Let's see how you're going to do today. (laughs) The first question is actually one of the easier ones. What's your favorite swear word? Bollocks. Bollocks. (laughs) Are you familiar familiar with that one yet? Yes, yes, of course. Well, I hang out with a bunch of people from the UK. What profession, other than if you weren't a sports guy, what would you be doing? What would you have been doing? Acting. 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 You know, actually, now that you say that, it doesn't surprise me. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you hit the gates?
1: Well done.
0: On a scale of 1 to 10, how weird are you?
1: (laughs) It depends. It's (laughs) 5. See, good for you. That's
0: actually pretty reasonable. What are you just not very good at that really stands out?
1: Yeah, singing. Oh? Singing. Yeah. Okay. Well, I won't ask you ever. No, no, no. (laughs) It wouldn't be fair on your listeners.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Your room, your desk, your car. What do you clean first?
1: Desk, room, car. They're all pretty clean, though. I'm uh, an orderly environment. I uh, subscribe to the clear environment, clear mind. You know, the setup of things successful. So they're all pretty, uh, pretty clean and clear.
0: Do you have a favorite tune? No, not a favorite. Uh, no. Nothing that stands out. Favorite movie? *Pulp Fiction*. Wow, that goes back. That was a great movie. Yeah,
1: great movie. Classic.
0: What are you grateful for? My breath. Mm. Cool. It's one of my favorite questions of the show because it actually allows me to also get grounded. I'm always grateful for the guests that are on my show. Really grateful to have had the opportunity to to meet you and get to know you a little better. And uh, today I'm just really, really grateful for the environment that I live in near Vancouver. It's a beautiful day to day it's sunny and bright very grateful for that and i'm always grateful yeah. for my wife so
1: of course oh, wonderful yeah there's so many lists i do a uh, gratitude journal at the moment where you start off with um three things you're grateful for and i've been building that as a as a, as a habit but i've been again the th- when you asked me the question i went with the first thing that came up sure, and perfect. uh it was, it was yeah it was just that was the thing it was just like what have i got every day that i can be grateful yeah And that was the one. You know, sometimes
0: I think when we might be having a bad day, when you look at what are you grateful for, sometimes you have to break it down into just something as important and what we take for granted, which is breath, you know, our health, right? Yeah,
1: it's where everything starts, right? Isn't it?
0: Leon, it has been absolutely fantastic having you on the show. I've enjoyed the conversation very, very much and uh, getting to know you. Likewise.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. And look forward to doing it again, my friend.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo@raincanada.com. At That's c e o r e i n canada.com. I look forward to hearing from you and until next time, patrick go.